Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Friday, March 1st, that month of February just flew by, even with an extra day. And here we are. We're about to embark on, uh, I guess, losing or gaining daylight savings time. Not even sure how to even say that any longer. But we have a great show lined up for you today. In the back half of the 12 o'clock hour, we'll visit with Tom Trung, WWL multimedia journalist, the uh, new podcast that he's releasing, Faith versus Finances. And this is all about a church uh, out there that's struggling to stay alive. On the list of a dozen or more churches that the Archdiocese of New Orleans intends to close, they want to stick around. They want to stay in. Uh, very compelling story. At the top of the hour, noon hour that is, Donnie Rouse, owner of Rouse's, they were recently recognized as one of the top independent grocery stores in the country. We'll talk about what that means for his organization as well as um, how are they making up for some of these shortages in crawfish. Uh, It's a big staple for them in their chain of stores, and we'll talk to the owner of Rouse's, Donnie Rouse, in the 12 o'clock hour. Lacey Osborne joins us, CEO and president of the St. Tammany Chamber of Commerce. We'll talk all things North Shore uh, in that hour. We intend to bring Lacey on the show every other week to touch in to, with our partners over there because they play a very important part of our economy here through the metropolitan area. In the back half of the 10 o'clock hour, Mark Diana, Professor, Associate Dean for Curriculum and Special Projects, Newcomb Tulane College. What is the state of the healthcare system in non-urban areas? Louisiana has been one of the few states that has been able to hold on with rural healthcare, rural hospitals that is, not having to close. A most recent report indicates that that may not be too much longer and we'll find. Shelby, welcome to the show. Well, hello, sir. It's good to be back on with you. It's been about a year since we last spoke, and I appreciate you having me back. Absolutely. Uh, I'm completely intrigued by this program, one, because it's all about submarines. You don't ever hear much conversation about submarines, and two, about the numbers that y'all are looking to hire over the next 10 years. Well, yeah, the the Navy has a pretty big task in front of it to continue to build the program of Virginia-class attack submarines bring on a new ballistic submarine boat, the Columbia-class. And then you may have heard some details uh, in the news about the AUKUS program, which brings some of our international partners 
under that same umbrella. So the combination of all of that growth, the detailed work that it takes to build those submarines, and the retirement of the existing artisans in the shipyards has created a really fascinating dynamic of this 10,000 hires a year for the next decade demand signal. So next stop is actually a Houston-based company with a New Orleans area presence, and the actual work on the submarines would occur where? So what we do is uh, we help enlisted veterans find good careers. That's our overarching mission as a nonprofit. And so what we're trying to do is get this year, just as we get started, 100 of our candidates placed into submarine industrial-based jobs. Um, Most of our relationships are along the Gulf Coast historically, and so we look for companies along the Gulf Coast that have a contribution to that submarine industrial base. And at the same time, we're reaching out and developing training pipeline partners and other SIB, as they refer to them, employers up and down the East Coast and eventually out on the West Coast as well. And um, when we think about this, what I'm sure that, that what you're looking for is really diverse, right, from pipe fitters to electricians to this to that, tech, uh, technology folks. That's right. It's a, it's a wide berth. You know, they have demand signals for uh, definitely certified skilled labor. Um, not that many people come out of the service with a qualification in, say, CNC machinist operator or uh, even welding. But there's plenty of quality training pipelines out there that we're getting connected to. An example is uh, ATDM in Danville, Virginia. It's funded by the Navy. It has five training tracks. They're four months long each. And it's welding and CNC. It's additive manufacturing, metrology, and quality assurance. And once a candidate goes through that program and gets the certification, then someone like us or their um, career placement group will help them get connected through job fairs and other direct engagement to go into the shipyards. Or the, not necessarily on the shipyards. It can be a, a welder position somewhere in Ohio or Michigan or Louisiana where uh, they contribute to some component that ultimately makes it way into a subsystem and then into a submarine. And I, and I have to imagine, uh, Shelby, because of the technical nature of all of this and because you're bringing in a number of these trades, that the pay scales throughout this operation have to be pretty healthy. Yeah, you know, part of our mission is to get our candidates into good careers, not just jobs and careers that pay well. And we've set some internal metrics that uh, kind of organize our organization towards identifying these more difficult to access training pathways or careers because of the higher pay. And overall, we placed, we had a record last year, 669 placements and a record average starting salary at just under $66,000 a year. What was really fascinating though, is we got a grant from the Bob Woodruff Foundation to look at what we call direct hires. And that's where we work with a candidate and an employer and we match that candidate to a job, and then they get hired. And for the subset of candidates that we looked at for direct placement under that grant, we noticed an interesting dynamic in that their average starting salary was nearly $85,000 a year, and a higher percentage of them did not have any level of formal degree after high school. So it was very interesting data. We continue to collect it and observe it. 
But the takeaway for us was that this effort to engage the employers directly and introduce our candidates directly to those is good for the mission, it's good for the candidates, and it's obviously good for the employers to get a good quality trained candidate. And how many submarine industrial bases are you guys affiliated with? Because I think I understand that there are many across the country. Is that correct? So there are numerous Navy bases that host submarines. Uh, In this terminology, the submarine industrial base isn't so much an individual Navy base as it is the organizations, nearly 17,000 of them nationally, uh, corporations, training centers, et cetera, that produce all of the components that actually go into building and sustaining a submarine. So in some cases, like up in uh, Maine, New Hampshire area, there's a Navy base that does maintenance. Uh, There's Kings Bay, Georgia, that hosts submarines. That's not normally what we're talking about. We're talking about the many manufacturers all over the country who build the components that go into those submarines and sustaining them. The the works and processes, right? All of the... (laughs) the critical parts that make up the submarine as a, as a whole. And that's actually better for what it is that you're trying to accomplish, because if you're thinking about um, 17,000 of those around the country, it gives you a, a lot of choices as to where you were, where you want to be and what you want to be, right? Absolutely. And that's a theme that we, I believe, touched on last year was that growing out of Houston into Louisiana over the course of the last nine years, We've built up a a very strong employer base along the Gulf Coast, and there's a lot of veterans who are from here and come home or that come down to the Gulf Coast looking for this kind of work. But there's also veterans who want to go to different geographies around the country for various reasons and various opportunities. So that's been a theme over the course of the last 16 or so months I've been with Next Stop, and I think we've made some good success in that, and the summary industrial base is is a crown jewel in that effort for sure have to imagine that the employee retention rate is pretty high. From the data that we get, uh, we are beholden to survey responses, which, as you can imagine, aren't always great. But every one of our candidates gets a survey on exit about the quality of the services from us. Then we continue to survey them over a period of time, three months, six months, 12 months, etc. The response rates fall off, but from the data we do get back, the retention rates are very good. And we have informal anecdotal surveys with the employers themselves, which we're formalizing more of uh, through some system enhancements and direct engagement with employers to get feedback about the quality of the individual candidates that they received. And then did they stay? How long did they stay? How long did they stay in that position? Were they promoted, et cetera? That's really important data for us to understand and continue to improve the services that we provide and also to be able to articulate a good value proposition for employers. But everything that we see is that retention rates are far higher than normal. Absolutely. Um, Shelby, uh, final thoughts? Well, I did, I did want to highlight that when I came on the show last year, we were looking down the barrel at our 1,000 placement of candidates in Louisiana. I'm happy to announce that we passed that sometime late summer. You know, we celebrated that fact in the fall, and we're now – past 1,100 all-time. We went live in Louisiana in early 2018. And so uh, that's been a great cornerstone of growth. The rate of placement in Louisiana continues to accelerate. 
And uh, Michael Hecht and his team over at uh, GNO Inc. are working with us now on Next Energy and trying to figure out how we might be able to add value in getting our candidates early into the processes to support the next generation of energy production in Louisiana. So those are a couple of little highlights I just wanted to shout out there. Absolutely. And uh, these are for um, folks that have served either active in the military or have retired for the military looking for an, another place to land, right? That's right. Uh, about 40% of our candidates are transitioning out of service and looking for that first career opportunity after the military. But the rest have either gone on and maybe used their GI Bill and gotten a degree in college and now they need an opportunity or they've been out for a while and they want to change. They want to do something different. We help all of them. And uh, we've also broadened our demographic base that we serve from what we used to call middle enlisted, B3 to E7, now to any enlisted. So if you're a post 9-11 enlisted, active duty, transitioning or veteran and want career services and want to have opportunities to get into things like submarine industrial base, cybersecurity, logistics, oil and gas, et cetera, come see us at nextstopvets.org. Absolutely. Uh, great opportunity uh, there, training, everything else that goes with it. Y'all pretty much wrap up the whole package and put a bow on it, and uh, that makes it easy for our veterans who we uh, you know, care a lot about and really uh, want to thank them for all of their service as well. Shelby, uh, check in with us so we can uh, find out where y'all stand on this, and if we can have you back on again, we'd love to. Shelby Mounts, Next Ops Executive uh, Director, folks, U.S. Navy Submarine Industrial Base Program. They're looking to hire 100,000 new skilled trade workers over the next 10 years. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back, folks. Having a little bit of a technical difficulty, lost the signal. Wanted to remind everyone that the New Orleans 9-11 Memorial Stair Climb will take place Saturday, March 2nd. That's actually tomorrow, right there at 400 Poydras Tower. Um, the building is honored to host the building uh, for the annual New Orleans 9-11 Memorial Stair Climb. The building stairwells will be utilized uh, between the first and 21st floors for the event. Firefighters and others climb the stairs with all the equipment on, and they'll do that at approximately 8 a.m. And if you've not seen it, it's a great event. Um, 
everything goes to a good cause saturday march 2nd 2024 uh in the 400 poydras tower lobby there uh, there will be a mile of silence remembrance walk, which will begin at 7.45 a.m. at the corner of Porter Street and Magazine Street. Walkers will proceed down Magazine Street to Andrew Higgins, take a right on Andrew Higgins to Camp Street, take a right on Camp Street, back down to Porter Street and finish back at the corner of Porter Street and Magazine Street in front of the 400 Porter's Tower. So there'll be some intermittent closings uh, there, but uh, if you ever, you know, if you've not seen this, you really uh, need to get out and see it. It's really, really, really well done, and uh, and appreciate all that remember um, the events of 9/11, and uh, they remember um, those that have lost their lives. Coleman, do we have? Um, Okay, we're still trying to hook up with our guest, Mark Diana, who is the uh, Professor Associate Dean for Curriculum and Special Projects at Newcomb uh, Tulane College uh, to discuss a most recent report that's out about the state of the state of Louisiana's rural hospitals. Louisiana has been a state that's been fortunate thus far where throughout the pandemic have not had to shut down any of the rural hospitals. Uh, can't say the same for a number of states around the country. And uh, it's been a challenge. Um, and uh, most recent reports say this challenge is getting more and more intense for rural hospitals. And Mark Diana joins us, Ph.D., M- MBA, MSIS, Professor, Associate Dean for Curriculum and Special Projects at Newcomb Tulane College. Uh, Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I was just giving kind of the landscape of, of uh, rural hospitals and the challenges of same in that most recent reports. Louisiana has kind of been immune from this through the pandemic, but obviously it seems as though conditions are getting worse. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, Louisiana has actually fared fairly well up to this point, but uh, there's no question that rural hospitals across the country and, and in Louisiana are struggling. Uh, many of them are you know, operating at a loss. I mean, they're in the red, and those that aren't are operating on very slim margins. So it's, it's and, and as you mentioned, the pandemic funding that was available has all gone away. And so, um, yes, it's very challenging for rural hospitals right now. So Louisiana is kind of odd in the way that they fund this, uh, and I think a lot of states have these exotic financing plans for um, rural hospitals. But if you would, for the benefit of the listening audience, how critical are the rural hospitals to just the over, uh, overarching healthcare delivery system in, in any state? Yeah, I mean they are they are critical, particularly in a in a state like Louisiana that's largely rural. Um, but even in other states where there aren't as many rural areas, they're they're critical in terms of you know entry points and access for for um, you know populations that have um, you know challenges with regard to traveling and getting from you know their locations to a more a more major urban center. I mean that's one of the primary barriers. Um, uh, you know, if these hospitals close or if they shift their model so that they don't have inpatient beds anymore, which is one of the things that some of them are doing, you know, that means that to get care, and sometimes simple uh, things as simple as I make it sound like it's simple, but, you know, OBGYN types of services, you know, deliveries and those kinds of things, 
uh, accessing those can be challenging if you have to drive, you know, hours away to get to a facility. So, um, so that's the primary thing. You know, there's also the primary care, you know, systems that um, they provide, but rural hospitals are the only source of that care. So it's things like, you know, OBGYN and other types of services, emergency services that, um, you know, are not readily available if these hospitals close. So it's critical to these communities, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, when you think about uh, the lack of emergency care, that that's when you know um, you're going to have difficulty finding alternatives because even, you know, there, there was this right. move afoot. I know you're aware of it, of these standalone emergency centers uh, for a while. But those more and more have yeah. seemed to go by the wayside, and, and, and the economics of those, um, you know, are, too, are not too much better than the full-blown hospital. So... We don't even really see a lot of those, those types of uh, remedial efforts in the rural area. That's correct. I mean, um, the, the freestanding emergency departments, even even <clears throat> where they're still prevalent and, and still growing, it's usually in, you know, markets that are, you know, more affluent, that are um, mostly um, patients with private insurance, which means they've got, you know, good um, good jobs with good health insurance. Uh, <clears throat> those are not usually located in rural locations, right? So, even where they're you know still still going strong, they aren't really the answer, um, particularly not for emergency care. Now, one of the things that um, rural hospitals are doing, and I'm not aware that there are any in, in Louisiana that have done this yet, but is what's it, it's um, transitioning to what's called the rural rural emergency hospital, which means they don't take inpatients anymore. Patients can't go and stay overnight in the hospital, but the hospital can still provide emergency services. So you're still seeing a, you know, a curtailing of access, um, but the emergency services haven't gone away. Um, so it's not an ideal situation, but it is a way for them to sort of try to keep at least some access in those communities. Louisiana historically has taken um, the certification of uncompensated care in the urban hospitals, uh, sent that up to the federal government. I think they get either a two-to-one or three-to-one match that comes back to the state of Louisiana. In most states, uh, at least a portion of that money goes back to the certifying hospitals, not here. What they do is they take that money to fund uh, the um, rurals. But Right. At the same time that we have now, we have a challenge in urban hospitals that are really trying to make the cut and are having a difficult time as well, right? Yeah, I think that's fair, and it, it is very complicated. You did a great job of sort of describing what happens there, um, and that money, that money that goes to hospitals that provide, you know, uncompensated care, that is, you know, care to patients who don't have insurance, Um uh, does get moved to rural hospitals. It's a major support, and it's not, you know, it's not explicit in the policy. In other words, it's not like this is money that's set aside for rural hospitals. So the state does this, and yeah, the match is three to one, um, which is a favorable match for Louisiana. Um, but yeah, so urban hospitals, particularly ones that are located or have a high, you know, load of uncompensated care are actually also struggling. Um, and so diverting some of that money is a challenge for them. The other thing I would add is that, um, you know, Louisiana has expanded Medicaid. Yeah. Um, unlike most other states in the Southeast, um, 
part of the original policy thinking around Medicaid expansion was, well, we won't need this much money for uncompensated care anymore because Medicaid patients, you know, patients will not have Medicaid and so they won't be uninsured. And so the original thinking was, well, then we can reduce the amount of money we're sending to hospitals for uncompensated care. I hope that, that that's making sense. That well, has been put off over. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go no, ahead. I was going to say it. It sounds, you know, like it makes sense in theory, but I, I think you're about to tell me in practice it doesn't work very well. So well go, go ahead. Well, so <laughs> yes, that's that's well said. Um, it in theory makes a lot of sense, right? Okay, we're going to stop having to pay for uncompensated care, so we don't need to give you as much support for those patients. Well, it was never enough support in the first place. Um, right. Secondly. Um, you know, um, that that has been put off um, repeatedly, but it looks like they're going to go back to looking at cutting those funds. And what hospitals will tell you is, you know, Medicaid doesn't pay very well. So even though a patient who didn't have insurance may now have Medicaid, they're still taking a loss, right? They're still, it's costing them more to provide care to these patients than what Medicaid pays. And so there's still a shortfall there. So um, so even that isn't really satisfactory, but it does represent a squeeze. You know, if they start cutting this uncompensated care, these payments, um, then it's going to make it even harder for the for all of the hospitals and the state to figure out how to deal with this. Doc, how much of this? Wonky, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I sat on the board of East Jeff Hospital for in excess of twenty years, and that's the only reason why I know some of this nomenclature and how this flows because it runs contrary to everything I ever learned uh, from a business perspective in in school. I mean, mm-hmm. it is the most confounding healthcare economy is the most confounding thing you I think, and, and I, I guess you would probably agree with me that you ever going to be exposed to. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it, it is, is crazy. Yeah. It's almost maniacal in many aspects. But be be, mm-hmm. be that as it as it may, you know, when when we're when we're looking at marketplace conditions, supply demand, a lot of different contributing factors to it. One is we have a shortage of doctors and healthcare professionals, and it and it. And it doesn't seem like we can ever get the dots connected here to gain a better understanding. I mean, the number of students that are being admitted into most of the medical schools today is the same number of students they were admitting 25 years ago. And, and yeah. we're not seeing a, a, a larger, uh, you know, uh, admittance uh, curve or anything else going on here. And, and I don't understand why. I mean, we're we're kind of killing ourselves, um, and 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 these things go in ten-year cycles. You're not going to move the needle here anywhere. I don't think in the healthcare economy in one to three years. The the cycles are far greater than that. Would you agree? Yeah, particularly when you're talking about supply of physicians in particular, but other other healthcare professionals. You know, the horizon, the time horizon isn't quite as long. Nursing is an is an example where. You know that that shortage seems to have you know been in existence for I don't know however many decades I've been involved in this business. It's you know always seems to be there. But anyway, I think you're right, and I I don't want to speculate too much as to the motives behind why. Obviously, when you think about supply and demand, 
you know, if you limit supply, then, you know, there's high demand and that, you know, corners um, bigger wages. You know, Got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you said it. Um, and, you know, so that's a challenge. And it's even worse when it comes to rural locations, because, you know, salaries are not as great. You know, the, the kinds of amenities that people like when they, you know, are used to living in an urban setting. I mean, you know, there are lots of factors and there's lots of speculation as to why we, you know, train physicians in Louisiana, you know, LSU and Tulane and, you know, and they don't go work in rural locations. So even though, I guess what I'm saying is even if we were able to increase that supply, it's not clear to me that these people would locate into rural settings. There's something else that has to happen. And I, I don't know what that is. Um, I don't, you know, unfortunately have the answers to many of these questions, but yeah. But I wanted to point out that that's a, a, an aggravating factor here, that even if we had a, a sufficient supply, there's no guarantee they would end up in rural locations. Well, and, and it's not really, I mean, there's a shared responsibility and onus here, right? I mean, the federal government, mm-hmm. and, and we, they give enormous for major teaching status at, at a number of these uh, medical schools and stuff and residency programs and I don't know that there's really been much of an appetite from the federal perspective in providing more dollars and more access to this and, and being more robust. And it kind of mystifies me that someone hadn't sat mm-hmm. down and, and explained to folks all of the touch points that need to be clicking on all cylinders to create a landscape to make health care more affordable and to make sense yeah. out of the health care delivery system in this friction that we have urban rural you know and and how we're going to ultimately end up funding and financing same yeah now you just laid out you know (laughs) the i guess what i would say is like the major challenge that faces us as as you know well not just consumers but health policymakers um it's such a tangled mess uh and you know it goes back to a point you made earlier about the economics of health care and how convoluted and I think confounded was the word you used. Yes. Um, you know, it, it's it's really difficult to untangle it all. And, you know, much of it is, um, I, you know, I tell my students all the time, nobody would sit down and like start from scratch and come up with a system like we have. Uh, it's been, you know, the result of the way it's evolved over time, these different policy choices that we make, and many of them are shorter term. Let's try to fix this piece without thinking about how it interacts with other pieces um, or, or, you know, what attention needs to be paid to the other pieces, as you say. Um, And, you know, when you get into the politics of it, it's, you know, as you know, it's very difficult to get people to sit down and agree on even simple things, uh, let alone something as complex as healthcare. Um, so it, it's a real challenge. I know that's not a satisfactory answer. Um, no, I but I, answer. I'm just chuckling because I, 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 I'm going to throw this out just to be silly. So you don't know anybody that was in that mystical room that actually created this mess. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> I don't think that person actually exists. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's it is the it is the proverbial you got to laugh to keep from crying. I mean, because there's, <laughs> yeah. you know, you have a lot of people that are in this industry. I mean, it's a major employer in the state of Louisiana, right? Um, and yeah, obviously, absolutely. 
we have an overrepresentation of those that live below the federally identified poverty level in Louisiana. So it is right. a heightened challenge for us, unlike many, many other states in this country. And, and it's something I put it up there with flood insurance. I put it up there with homeowners insurance. I don't think yeah. people really recognize the the challenges that we have in the state of Louisiana from a health care perspective. No, I, I agree with you about that. And one of the things that, you know, I, um, you know, routinely come back to and, you know, there's this persistent relationship between poverty, as you suggest, and poor health outcomes. Uh, it's it's pervasive no matter where you look. Uh, it's it's an issue. Uh, I mean, around the world, it's this relationship exists. I mean, there are obviously variations and, you know, places and, and poverty exists in both rural and urban locations, but there is this clear relationship. But if you add rurality, that relationship also exists, right? The, the relationship mm-hmm. between rural uh, locations and poor health outcomes also is is persistent. And we see it around, you know, everywhere we look um, and Louisiana to your point, is largely rural, a largely poor state. And so while we can try to do things like imp- help get people to improve their diets and get people to improve you know, their lifestyle behaviors and those kinds of things, and all of those are great things, but they don't really get to the real, to what I consider to be the real challenge here. Now, from a policy perspective, that doesn't mean we can just you know, make sure nobody's poor or lives in a rural location, right? Obviously, you can't do right. that. Yeah. So there has to be some lever that we can come up with, right, that helps to address it. So probably more of an answer than you wanted, but. No, but it's so true. And I, and I, I think it, it's important to uh, um, craft this in a way where the public understands that this is really one of the most complex situations that we have. I mean, there's so many moving parts some you have control yes. over, the vast majority you have no control over. Um, no, and it's so critical, it, as you point out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Professor Diana, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time uh, and your insight. Have a great week. Thank you. You too. It's really been a pleasure. All righty, sir. We will be right back, 504-260-1870. This is Newell on WWL. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. 
Medela, the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. And Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. The other day we had a, a, a great, robust conversation with... Um folks from external affairs over at New Orleans and Company and we were talking about a new program uh, in dealing uh, with uh, the homeless that had uh, been proposed and, and perpetuated by Councilwoman Leslie Harris and I was excited to hear about it because it's really this collaborative effort to create uh, uh, an, oppor- an opportunity to fill voids along the continuum of services for the homeless. And I came across an article um, just yesterday um, that was highlighting problems that folks were having in St. Louis. And, and it just occurred to me that when you don't do what we're doing here in the city, this story highlights the potential downfall outcomes that are just really, really ugly. In fact, a, a couple, Richard Baumhoff and Steve McClanahan in, Saint, in uh, South St. Louis, they can't even utilize the front of their home. There's this wide area between the sidewalk and the street there in his neighborhood. It, it looks like it, I got a picture of it, and it looks like it might be about six feet uh, in width. And right there on that piece of property, right on a corner, is a couple of folks that have set up a homeless camp. It's just it by itself. There's no other homeless people anywhere around. They've been here for a couple of years, and they haven't been able to move them out. The homeowners can't cut their grass because when they do, they get yelled at by the homeless people. They don't utilize their front porch because the stench is so significant they can't even utilize their front porch they used to have i guess chairs on the front porch it's one of those typical um 1940s 1950s style raised house got a basement you know in st louis brick veneer can't enjoy it they're now suing city leaders uh using uh, an exotic theory uh, as it relates to this public nuisance, and they're contributing to saying by not having any type of enforcement uh, action uh, by policy or otherwise. And they just can't seem to get these folks to, to move on. When you hear these horror stories like this that, that exist where folks and their property rights and their ability to, to live their life in, in, in a place that's probably the largest investment they will ever make, You have to scratch your head and wonder what these leaders are thinking. Why would they not take some action, develop an approach to deal with this? Not sure. The culture of noncompliance lives on. We'll be right back, folks. Stay with us. This is Newell on WWL. Welcome back, folks. When we come back... After the top of the hour news break, we'll visit with Lacey Osborne, CEO and president of the St. Tammany Chamber of Commerce. Obviously, as the North Shore continues to grow in population and development, St. Tammany uh, Parish is now 
our state fourth most populous uh, parish behind Jefferson, Orleans, and East Baton Rouge. And, you know, what was once always thought of as a rural parish, that is changing, and it's changing quick. So we'll welcome Lacey uh, coming up, and we'll talk about uh, some of the latest business activity on the North Shore. And in uh, the second half of that hour, we'll go to the talk lines on No Filter Friday. We want to hear from you, anything that you want to talk about. And we'll visit with Donnie Rouse at 12 and Ton Trung. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.